0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and his church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. I want to begin this morning with a question for you to ponder that I actually do want you to answer in your heart. Don't say it out loud. What prevents you from walking with Jesus? What prevents you from walking with Jesus? To put it another way, what obstacles are between you and a full, colorful, deep relationship with Jesus? You might be visiting this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, but you're interested. What's preventing you from diving in or being baptized? Maybe you would describe yourself as a Christian. You've been in church a long time, but when you're in these seats, there's a block. There's maybe some reason that Jesus and a full faith in him is kept at arm's length for some reason. There's a skepticism or a hesitation. What are those obstacles for you? I want you to think about that. Carry it with you through this story. I want you to think about that question I ask you because that is the question that's actually at the heart of this story in the book of Acts for us this morning. Open up to your Acts page in your bulletin or in your Bible. It's in Acts 8, verse 36. You guys there? And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? In other words, he's saying, what's between me and Jesus? Is there anything that keeps me from from joining in? Is there any reason why I can't do this? And what's wild is that I think that question in this story is actually dripping with irony. Because on the surface, it looks like actually there's a ton of stuff that should prevent you from being baptized. But as we'll see, they're all overcome through the hearing of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the presence of the church. The title for this sermon today is The Church Converts, part one. We're in a series in the book of Acts because this is a part of the early church's story where things are absolutely exploding. The church is growing so fast. And even amidst a persecution, we read Stephen's story last week where he was martyred, the first martyr. It's just blowing up. Thousands of people are coming home to Jesus and his church. And yet, it's really interesting, in the middle of all these thousands, Luke, the guy who wrote this book, decides to focus in on two people in this section to show their conversion. Next week, it's the Apostle Paul. Oh man, that story. Get excited about next week. It's so good. This week is the Ethiopian eunuch. For some reason, Luke wants us to know this guy's story. There's something about it that is important for you and I to get and see. And I think when we look at his story, there are two huge obstacles that pop up in this passage that are in between him and his conversion and baptism. So we wanna take a look at those, and we wanna look at the way that the Holy Spirit overcomes those obstacles. Sound good? And his story is definitely different than yours, but I wonder if there's something about his story that might speak into maybe some obstacles in your own life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray for your Holy Spirit to be that personal God connection to each of us as we we come under your word this morning. Open us up. Set a fire in our hearts that hasn't been there previously this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's go back to your Acts reading. So turn with me. We're going to be there for a little bit. Um, Before we dive in, I want to give a little context for what's going on. Remember, Acts begins when Jesus tells his people in Acts 1-8 that they will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the great character of the book of Acts. And that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, which is the city epicenter of the church's start. And then Judea, which is like the state. And then Samaria, which is like the Midwest. And then the ends of the earth, which is like the ends of the earth. And the church begins in Jerusalem. It blows up, like I said, until it grows. It, it gets persecuted, and then that persecution causes it to scatter, and it goes out into Samaria. And Philip, who was one of the guys who was chosen to be a deacon, along with Stephen, which we, we read last week, it starts preaching in Samaria, and it starts blowing up in Samaria, which was nuts because Jews and Samaritans didn't really hang out all that much. you are familiar with kind of Bible culture. And it's as Philip is heading home, from preaching in Samaria that this happens, okay? So look at me at verse, verse 36. We're going to read the first portion of it. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And at this point, you should hear wind blowing and tumbleweed and like a Clint Eastwood. You know what I'm talking about? That's really important. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. Probably should be an exclamation point right there. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah, just for fun. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. Now this is wild. Let me see if I can paint this picture to try to get us to feel what's happening here. The angel asks Philip to head south on a desert road. This would be like an angel visiting you and saying, I want you to go to 39, and I want you to go south to Chicago. Just go. Don't worry about what's going to happen. Just go. It's in the middle of a super hot day, and nobody else is there, but I want you to just start heading south. And again, it makes a point of saying it's a desert place. And there he spots an Ethiopian eunuch who's super rich and politically important. Um, in ancient times, the country of Ethiopia or the nation of Ethiopia was for ancient people anything south of the king of Egypt or the kingdom of Egypt. So think just like super exotic, way out there, um, very far and important Jewish people who would be thinking about it. And then the text goes to great lengths to show how rich and important this guy is. He's in charge of all the royal money. That's money. He's wealthy enough to have his own chariot. That was a big deal. He's reading his own copy of Isaiah in a scroll, which at that day and age was very bougie. (laughs) Not many people (laughs) could have their own Isaiah scroll. He speaks elegant Greek. This guy's a big deal, okay? So to just try to make this analogy more ridiculous, it'd be like you're going south on 39, because the Spirit told you to, and all of a sudden you see like a prince from Dubai cruising in a Rolls Royce Wraith, which is a very nice car, and you're like, oh my gosh, and then you find out that he's listening to the Bible on audio. And as you're utterly struck, the Spirit says, go up to his Rolls. What a bizarre situation, right? I think it's a picture of geographical isolation. You have to get that picture in your mind, and it's also a picture of cultural difference distinction. And as we focus in on this guy, the Ethiopian eunuch, those are the things which bring us to his first obstacle. Okay, so obstacle one. They do have alliteration. Marissa and I worked hard on this. He had a belonging obstacle. That's his first obstacle. He had a belonging obstacle, just by the nature of who he was, where he was born. To put it bluntly, he was an Ethiopian eunuch. Now why would that have been an obstacle for this guy? First, as an Ethiopian, he would have been ethnically and culturally on the outside. Um, there's a lot of debate about whether this guy is Jewish but just lives in Ethiopia, or whether he's an Ethiopian convert to Judaism, which Jews in that day would have called a proselyte, or whether he's like me and he's 100% bona fide Gentile, fully genuine. Uh, I a, read a lot of really good arguments for both sides. What's Regardless, what is super clear is that he's a cultural outsider. Um, Remember, Christianity begins as a movement within Judaism, and it begins in Jerusalem with all these Jewish men and women. And in Jewish culture and religion, just like in ours, so I'm not pointing any fingers, there were levels of in and out in their social religious world. Um, Even the temple kind of is a picture of this. You have the Holy of Holies that only some people can go to, and then certain other people can go a little bit further, and it goes on out. Regardless uh, of whether this guy was a Gentile or not, there's no doubt that as an Ethiopian, there's only so far the guy could go in that world. Does that make sense? He was a cultural outsider. And to top it off, he's a eunuch. Now as a court official to the queen, it's not weird for him to be a eunuch. In lots of kingdoms in ancient times, it was really common uh, for people to become eunuchs in order to serve. is actually a really good career decision uh, in some kingdoms. But there's an undercurrent to this passage, and what's going on in the undercurrent of this passage is that there were specific restrictions against eunuchs and those who had mutilated themselves in the Old Testament that they could not enter into the Jewish assembly. That's from a purity law in Deuteronomy 23. So not only is he on the outside of Jewish culture, he also has this personal, physical obstacle because he's a eunuch. He had an obstacle of belonging. He's culturally different. He's geographically isolated. He's going home. Now, this is an educated guess from me, okay? But I think it's educated. I have to imagine when he says, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? He has to be thinking about this. Don't you think? He's got to be. Baptism is this sacramental Jesus rite for entrance. It's the joining thing that we have as Christians where we we are fully included in communion with God and with the church. So this wonderful God-seeking man wants in and don't you hear hope and fear mingled in that question? Is it, Do I belong? Is there anything about, because I'm an Ethiopian or a eunuch that would restrict me from being a part of this? Do you guys feel that question? Do you feel what's behind it? You can imagine this guy going to Jerusalem. He's drawn to God, which is so beautiful. Uh, But I imagine him being an outsider. So if the Jerusalem assembly or that world was like our church, I don't imagine him reading or leading worship or serving communion or preaching or anything. I imagine like church starting and at like 1020, he pulls up in his Rolls Royce and kind of creeps in the back. And I imagine him feeling like, man, I'm so drawn to God, but I'm not one of these people. I know I'm different. This is the first glaring obstacle going on in this text, and it's a big one. But does it prevent him? You can talk back to me. No, it does not prevent him. How is this overcome? I think we see that it's overcome by the power of God working through the church. To overcome this obstacle, God is the one who works first. This is so cool in this passage. We need to see this. He moves towards him to bring this guy in. The Holy Spirit had obviously been moving in him, right? Because he bought Isaiah of his own free time. How many people who you know read Isaiah for fun? I know some, but not that many. And the Spirit saw him. He had his eye on him as he's alone in the desert moving south. God loved this guy. There's even an irony in the story concerning baptism. Where is the last place in the world that you find water? In the desert. If you're thinking, let's go have a baptism service, you think, like, let's go to Death Valley, right? No. It is a shock. You are supposed to, like, chuckle to yourself that they're on a desert road and all of a sudden there's water. It's almost like the man didn't even have to find the church. Do you catch this? The church comes and finds him. The baptismal font comes and finds him in the middle of a desert. God has a history of feeding his people in the middle of the desert. Here we have a picture of God miraculously providing water for joining into the church in the middle of a wasteland. What an amazing thing. He had an obstacle of belonging, he was on the outside, and God opened up to him the waters of baptism. He came out to him, the the winds of the spirit, just like we're experiencing now from the fan, blew the church out to him. That's really significant. Um, I think it teaches us so many things, but it definitely teaches us who's in the driver's seat when it comes to conversion and the transformation of the world. It's not us, right? It's God. And the church is always called to follow the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always ahead of us for good reason. And Philip is just courageous enough to follow. But that being said, what God is up to in this story isn't all that's surprising. So this wouldn't be a shock if you were really reading the Old Testament. Um, the Bible has this amazing history of crazy, countercultural, other-type heroes popping up. So I think of Rahab, the Gentile prostitute in the book of Joshua. I think of Uriah the Hittite, who's a Gentile who shows up David. Think of the wise men at Christmas. Remember that behold, and that story is meant to be like, ah, these Zen guys from the East are showing up at Jesus' birth. It's always been God's plan. But I think they're more to the point. I think Luke records this because there's a specific prophecy about eunuchs that I think he sees happening in this guy's story. Did you catch the Isaiah passage? Flip to your Isaiah passage. And I want want you to actually read it with me. So I'll give you time to get there. Oh man, this is really, really good. You guys there? Let's start in verse three. Let the foreigner, the outsider, who has joined himself to the Lord, that joining language is like clinging, I'm in, I wanna be with you, I want to be in communion with you language. Let the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. Do you hear even in that, the foreigner and the eunuch, uh, that articulation of fear of not being included? It's the exact same for the Ethiopian eunuch. Is there anything that prevents me? Verse four, for thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house, amen? In my house, within my walls, that's in language, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Oh man, and I love at the end, verse eight, the very bottom, the Lord God, the Lord, the God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides all those already gathered. Meaning it starts in the middle and the character of God says, I wanna gather out the lost sheep of Israel. So he goes to a further concentric circle and then he's like, no, I'm going to go even further than that. And he goes out. This story is God doing what he said he always would do. God keeps his word. Hallelujah. And you know what's awesome? The book in the chapter in Isaiah that the eunuch was reading in the chariot is Isaiah 53. This is Isaiah 56. So don't you think? Isn't it an amazing thing to ponder? that when Philip starts working through it with him, they got to this passage. What a thought. God's imagination is greater than ours. Amen? God's ability to transcend cultural, social, religious, racial boundaries is beyond any idea we've ever had or any institution we have ever made. Oh, that we might listen to him and hear him when he wants to blow us to bring somebody home. What do we learn from this first obstacle of belonging? I think it's really simple, but I have to say it. You guys know this. I think you know this. There is no one whom the gospel is not for. If you're here, wherever you're coming from, you need to know there is no one whom the gospel is not for. There is no one for whom the church is not meant by God himself to be home. Remember that passage in Isaiah? In my house, within the confines of my walls, I want to give this guy a name. The church is home for everyone, not just a certain type of people. Has the church historically, from Rome to America, married Christianity to certain nations or cultures in unhealthy and boundary-creating ways? 100%. Do we still struggle in our nation and in our country and even in this church to do that sometimes? 100%. But let it be known, those those are ones are not ones that God has put in place. Those are ones we have built in our sinfulness and what God has torn down, let us not rebuild. Amen? Christianity is not white, it's not black, it's not Western, it's not Eastern, it's not Republican. It's not democratic. If it's anything, it's Jewish. But our faith is built off of the Jewish Messiah who opened himself up to people like me so I could be included. So if you are here and you identify with the Ethiopian and the experience that I just described for him, being drawn to God, feeling like there might be something about Jesus that I'm thirsting for, and I think it might be it, but you feel like you are culturally on the outside of things and you feel like, I'm not one of these people though. You need to hear what the Bible's teaching this morning. Jesus is for you. The gospel is for you. You don't have to be like other people here to come to Jesus. Culturally, socially, whatever. God sees you. He wants you. if you're here and you feel more like Philip, so maybe you feel like actually I grew up in the middle of all this American Christian stuff. I feel very much at home. I think we can learn from Philip. I think he's a lesson for us, right? The charge for us is to never think the gospel is only for certain people. If I was gonna apply this a level down, I think one of the things we do is sometimes we assume for people that they don't wanna hear about Jesus or that they, they, they're gonna hate the church, right? It's the worst possible thing we can do is refuse to share the gospel with somebody because we've decided for them that they're not gonna like it. They're too culturally left, this is not for them. They're too culturally right, this is not for them. They're too ethnically different from me or they're too whatever. The gospel's for everybody. Don't you wanna experience this in our church, in Christ Church Madison, just speaking honestly between us? This, we're coming into the second year of a church plant. Don't you long for the Holy Spirit to tell you at some point, go over there and have the courage to answer it? I wonder where God might want to do that for us in our city and in our neighborhoods. What a thing to think about and pray for. Amen? Now let's keep on reading for the second obstacle. Verse 29. I want you to go there and track with me. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him. So you got a picture right now. Philip is coasting alongside his chariot, right? Apparently this is led by a mule, so it's not going that fast, but it is a pretty hilarious situation where Philip is kind of, hears him and people in the ancient world read out loud. So this guy is reading to himself and Philip's like coasting along this really important dude. Hilarious situation. He heard him reading Isaiah prophet and asked do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip up to come and sit down with them. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. That's Isaiah 53. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Just as an aside, that is every preacher's fantasy to be asked, what is Isaiah 53 about? (laughs) This suffering, who is this person? It's like the greatest hung curveball ever for an evangelist, but God's moving this guy. Second big obstacle, which Luke's make very clear here, and which is kind of what the rest of the story is about, is the eunuch had a Bible obstacle. He had a belonging obstacle, and then he had a Bible obstacle. He was drawn to the Hebrew scriptures, so much so he bought his own scroll, which is a big commitment, but he couldn't crack it. It was fuzzy. It's kind of confusing. What is going on in this passage? He's reading Isaiah and he's lost. Any of you ever read A Major Prophet and thought, what is going on? <laughs> um, I think this is really easy to apply because all of us have been there or are there. Okay, uh, if you're if you're here and like I was talking before, you're in that category of folks. You're you're new to Christianity. You're you're interested. You're seeking. The Bible might still be very strange and ancient to you. I hope you feel validated by this. That's okay. The eunuch was deeply drawn. To God's word and God, but there were big gaps in his understanding and big questions he still had. And many of us, if you've been in church forever and you feel like, I know all the tricks, I've been to the Awana stuff when I was a kid, I've been to VBS, you might still have a spiritual Bible obstacle, spell over there. You might have something in it that terrifies you or intimidates you or even offends you. You might be struggling with it. I know because I've been there many times in my life. Whatever the case, I want you guys to see that this is happening for the eunuch, okay? Feel validated that's okay, and I also want you to know that God does not want to leave you there. Philip comes up to him and asks him what? Do you get this? Do you understand this? And I love his response, it's so humble. He's a super important guy, but he's humble enough to say, heck no. How am I supposed to understand this unless somebody helps me? I need some help. He admits he needs a guide, and that's exactly what the Holy Spirit provides in the person of Philip. He provides someone to draw up alongside Philip and to unlock the scriptures for him. So just like the personal cultural stuff, the belonging obstacle, he overcomes this Bible barrier through the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is Philip's main job in this story, really, is to come alongside him with the Scriptures. Now let's think about how Philip unlocked the Scriptures for this guy. What did he do? What happened? This is really telling. Look at verse 35. Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth. That's prophetic. I'm doing a deeply old, ancient Bible prophet thing. God's put words in his mouth, and he's opening them. Then he opening up his mouth, and beginning with this Scripture, beginning with that one, He told him the good news. What's another way to say good news? Gospel. He told him the good news of Jesus. The key to the Ethiopian's confusion was the gospel of Jesus. That sounds like a Sunday school answer, but I'm not making it up. It's right there. The parallel story to this, which I've never really seen these connected before until I studied this this week, is the road to Emmaus in the gospels. That was our gospel reading this morning that Jesse read. In that story, there's these two guys, think about all the similarities, who are walking along a road, and they're really confused, except they get the resurrected Christ who walks up alongside them, and he opens up their mind to know the Scriptures. But now, if you are if you have your bulletin, your Bible in your hand, at the very end of that, here's what it says Jesus does specifically. Luke says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, notice how for Philip it says, and beginning with this, He interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus showed these guys that the key to understanding the Hebrew scriptures was him. They all pointed to him and his crucifixion and his resurrection was exactly what the eunuch is reading. They all made sense in the light of him. And when Jesus did that for these guys, it says their heart starts to burn. There's like coals that are lit on fire inside of him. Fuzziness and confusion becomes conviction and beauty and power. The flower of the Bible opens up to them as Jesus interprets it to them in the light of His gospel. Last week, Matthew talked about a passage in Second Corinthians uh, that says, when some of us read the Old Testament, there remains a veil over our faces, like you can't understand it. How's the veil removed? Paul says, when you get a PhD and you learn how to read Hebrew and Greek and you study a lot of books. No, that's not what it says. You know what it says? When you turn to the Lord, when you turn to the Lord Jesus, the veil is removed. Jesus is the key. That's exactly what Philip does in this this story. He basically takes the eunuch's face and he turns it to the person of Jesus and the veil is removed. That's what he needed to hear, was the news. That's exactly what he's still doing for us. I think this hits us because we all need help. It's okay to admit that. And Jesus puts people in our life to help us crack open the scriptures, to deepen it. That is how God has always empowered and made his communities, all the way back through the Old Testament, is that the the scriptures, the Torah, the Hebrew scriptures are opened up in the middle of the people and they're cracked open together. He puts people to help us see that they're good, that they point to Jesus, iron out our doubts, our questions we have, big gaps in our understanding. We're not meant to stay there with those. Um, I remember one time when I spe- experienced something like this. So I lived in England for a couple years, and uh, there was a season when I lived in England where I was deeply living in fear. Uh, losing my faith, grappling my faith, all these things. I had all these forces in my life that were pulling me in different directions. So Jesus was a force in my life uh, pulling me towards the way of faith, but I had all these other philosophical, cultural stuff that was just deeply, I felt like I was being quartered and drawn as a human. And it's really intense, um, but a a passage in scripture, one of a quote from Jesus, he was really powerfully using in my life at that time was this. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I know that's intense, but that was massive for me and God was using that like a screw inside my heart and just drilling it down. One time I was visiting the States Back from England, so it was just a short period home, and I was in a coffee shop and I was reading the Bible, and a guy tapped me on the shoulder. And I turned around and noticed it was a guy. As we talked, he wasn't a Christian, but somehow he'd got a Bible and was like interested, so he's just in a coffee shop reading it. And he taps me on the shoulder and he said, Can I ask you a question? I was like, Yeah, sure. And then he said, What does this mean? And then he showed me the verse: Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And at first I thought, I'm being punked. You know, like somebody's been reading my journal and like, let's play a joke on Scott. Go ask him what this means, you know? But then I could tell I was not being punked. The Holy Spirit was moving this guy and I was in that coffee shop for a reason. So I said something like, you know, gathering myself. Well, I think it means something about how Jesus is talking about how you fear God, fear men and women and what they think of you or can do to you and so you make your life about them or you fear God and you ultimately organize your life around serving him and pleasing him and being in his life. And I said, and I think Jesus is saying that the fool fears men and women over God to their eternal peril. And I kind of was like, you know. And then this guy closes his eyes and goes, I think you're right. God is teaching me that right now. He said, I've got a son and my life's falling apart And I think God wants me to hear this for the sake of me and my son. And I was like, wow. Then I was gone. I flew back to England. God used me in the same way to just clarify that for something for that guy that day. And I could tell hundreds of stories for me personally when I have been on the receiving end of that. I literally have been on the brink of destruction many times and said to somebody, I don't get this, I'm lost. Can you help me? How can I understand this unless somebody guides me? and the church was there to walk alongside with me and to interpret to me the scriptures concerning Jesus. Hallelujah. So it's okay to struggle with the scriptures. Um, We are a young church and we are building a culture of everything. Nothing is quite set in stone yet. And I want us to have an insanely voracious appetite for the Bible. I want us to be a church that devours it and loves it. But in this culture, I want it to be okay for you to have an obstacle, for you to have a question. The eunuch did. But if you do, I think uh, an application for this is to lean into the church, lean into God's people, don't lean out. You need to know that God wants to draw you deeper into His Word, He wants to lift deeper and deeper veils of your face so that your face shines like the face of Moses when he received the law on Mount Sinai. He wants to make it flower before you. He wants to light coals inside your chest for the word of God. But you also need to know that because it's so precious, the enemy, the forces that are at work against the power of Jesus, even though Jesus is stronger, the enemy would love to divide you from God's word. He would love to make it more and more of an obstacle to pit certain parts of it against other parts of it, to make it just boring, to make it repulsive to you. So beware of allowing yourself to stay there. Lean into the life of the church. Be honest about your doubts and your questions, but don't let them fossilize. I would be re- remiss if I didn't say, just before as we close here, that there might be things that God allows to remain hard or challenging in the Bible. Because in our sin, maybe we've set ourselves in opposition to the truth of God's word. I've experienced this. Or because there's some part of you that needs to be pruned, that there's a certain part of Scripture that is kind of the tip of the spear for in pointing out. The cross is described in the Bible as a stumbling block. The Greek word for it, I think, is actually scandalon. Whenever we get scandal. And the image there is the cross for people in their sin is like this massive rock you just smack into and it forces you to confront your sin. And there might be things that God leaves there because he wants it to challenge you. But it doesn't mean he wants it to be confusing, and I think there's a difference. That's why we have the church. The eunuch says, how can I understand unless someone guides me? Oh, that we might experience that this year. Oh, that the Holy Spirit would blow us into situations where we participate and are used by the Holy Spirit as an instrument through which someone's veil is removed. Man, this story begins with crazy obstacles, insurmountable odds. It's a confused outsider on a desert highway. It's literally like a Western with a Rolls Royce. The man began with a belonging obstacle, and God brought baptism to him. The church went out to gather in others who were outside. The man began with a Bible obstacle, and God opened up his eyes with Philip's help. Nothing is too hard for the power of the Holy Spirit working through the community of the church. It's a good lesson. Now think about your obstacle. Come full circle. It's probably way different maybe than belonging or Bible Maybe it's really similar. Maybe for some of you, you're like, no, that's right on the money. Whatever it is, nothing is too hard for the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel working through the church. Would you pray with me?